Prior to becoming your minister in 2012, I served as a pastor in progressive Christian congregations for nine years. Since I'm now starting my 10th year here, it occurred to me recently that I have now been a Unitarian Universalist minister slightly longer than I was a Christian pastor. So I guess that means that my turn to the dark side is now complete. Uh, <laughs> right. In all seriousness, though, I'm actually really grateful for the years and the time that I spent within the progressive Christian tradition, as well as the years that I have spent and continue to spend within our living tradition of Unitarian Universalism. There's a whole lot to say about that, but since this is a sermon, I, I think there might be an interesting takeaway for us this morning from juxtaposing the nine years that I spent preaching within um, progressive Christian contexts with the nine years that I've now spent preaching in UU contexts. If I look, for instance, at my bookshelves um, on, in my office here at UUCF, they've, they've changed over the past nine years in some fairly particular ways to boil it down to one word. As a UU, I am a much wider reader. The shelf space in my office that is now um, allotted to science and to history to dismantling racism, to all the world's religions, uh, Buddhism in particular, uh, and meditation as well. All of that has expanded, widened dramatically. And I am incredibly grateful for the opportunity to be so wide, expansive, and exploratory in what we do here together at UUCF. It's incredibly exciting that almost anything is fair game in our big tent of Unitarian Universalism, as long as it contributes to living well and ethically in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world. And as grateful as I am to be able to go really wide here at UUCF, looking back, I'm also grateful for the opportunity that I had as a progressive Christian pastor to go really deep to be a really deep reader, to mine and plumb the details and depths and nuances of a book or a single tradition. For instance, I, I once spent, you know, if we rewind a decade, I once spent six months preaching chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Matthew, whereas here we tend to shift our focus quite dramatically from week to week. I actually think both are worthwhile things to do. They're just different. I should hasten to add that there are also many of you who are going deep on your own. Just because you're here doesn't mean you're only going wide. There are people that are going deep on their own or through connected to various ones of our spirituality groups here at UCF, going deeply into Buddhism, going deeply into paganism, going deeply into Judaism or Christianity and Islam, while you're also here and being part of this big tent. But here in our main Sunday service, it is also true that there tends to be this vast breadth that we cover over the course of a year. We don't just like go deeply into one book. So on this tipping point occasion, as my tenure as a UU minister begins to overtake my time as a Christian pastor, I want to reach back and share with you one of the most important lessons that I learned from going deep in the Christian tradition. 
And, and it's one that's really, it's rarely as present for us as you use. And that is the lesson of how to wrestle meaning out of almost any text, to just keep working with it till you find the love, the hope, the strength. As you use, it can sometimes be different. As you use, we have the freedom to basically say like, all right, this text, eh. You know, like, we can basically talk, toss a text out the window if we feel like it. And don't get me wrong, that can be tremendously liberating to take a text that has maybe been weighing on your shoulder or really this constant wrestling and struggle with because it's oppressive for any number of reasons. You're just finding it on balance, more sexist, racist, homophobic, ableist, whatever, than it's worth can be really powerful to give yourself permission to just set that text down. If it's helpful to other people, great. But just say, you know, this just doesn't feel relevant to me anymore in light of modern science, in light of my personal experience, or just there's 10,000 things to spend your time doing, and I, I choose to not do this one. At the same time, I learned a tremendous amount from being regularly tasked with finding meaning from some of the most difficult texts the Bible has to offer. And I would like to share with you some of the tools for interpretation that I learned along the way. And far beyond the Bible, this isn't just about getting right with the Bible. There are applications for these approaches and how we approach any text from other sacred scriptures to other books and films and works of art, the United States Constitution, and more. Do any of you know the saying that if all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail? Well, sometimes I get the feeling that too many folks were only handed one pretty blunt object for interpreting their scripture, their traditions, sacred scriptures. And the end result too often ends up being some combination of painful, narcissistic, ethnocentric readings. But here's the good news. There are actually this whole array of interpretive options that are out there. And when I reflect on what I learned about interpreting texts in seminary in my many years as a Christian pastor, one image that comes to mind is of a hermeneutical Swiss army knife. We have all these different, you know, hermeneutical is just a fancy word for interpretation, right? Think of the Greek god Hermes, right? The messenger god. Or a big interpretive toolbox. Do any of you, any of you have you know, just a big toolbox or somebody in your family that you, know, you open it up and there's just all these different tools for the job? If you've spent um, much time listening to Christian sermons, you've likely heard the fruit of these tools, but I want to invite you to come back behind me, behind the curtain, to find out how the magic is made. I want to show my work today and show you how, how sometimes we get there. So imagine with me a really big toolbox, and you open up this toolbox, and there are three levels. You have that bottom level, and then you have two, two additional layers as you open it up, two shelves. And we could spend a lot of time familiarizing ourselves with every tool in this on each one of these levels. Indeed, some people spend the entirety of their professional careers becoming experts in just one of these interpretive tools. But I'm gonna take you on a very quick tour to give you a sense of just how many tools there are to play with. So let's start at the bottom level of the toolbox. This has the, uh, the label behind. So we're gonna have behind, we're gonna have in, and we're gonna have in front of. 
There in that bottom level, you're going to find a set of interpretive tools useful for using the text to try to get behind the text. Some people just get really stuck in the text, but you can use the text to, to get there behind to the context. There are many tools on this level. I'm going to limit myself to four of my favorites. So imagine we have a passage of scripture in front of us and we want to know, what does it mean? One tool we might pick up is historical criticism. What do we know? What was the original, when was this written? What was the original context? What was going on in the world at the time and what can that tell us? Another tool we might try is source criticism. What sources influence the author? What are they maybe alluding to? What are they directly quoting? And what are the larger contexts of that? What books did that person have access to? And what does that tell us about what they're either using or ignoring, etc.? Or we might try form criticism. In what forms did this, especially ancient text, in what forms did it circulate in when it was part of oral culture? instead of, you know, before it was written down. We sometimes read these texts and assume that there's like, that this, this form, that people were like saying it verbatim the way it is in this text. It's just not so. These things were said in a whole, you know, like the, story, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. It would probably take you two minutes to, to tell it the way it's written in the Gospel of Luke. People didn't have Netflix to compete with. Like, Somebody would have told that parable, it would have taken like 20 minutes to two hours. Like it would have been like the big fish story where you just, you, you give all the details and the nuance. So, um, so for example, forum critics might look at things like, like a fairy tale, for example, genres have conventions. So like fairy tales start with once upon a time and they have things like the rule of three that kind of govern. Well, um, there are recur recurring forms and structures to Parables, to parables, to miracle stories, to conflict narratives that influenced how they circulated in an oral tradition. I could, talk, I, I could talk forever about each of these. Let me move on. Redaction criticism. How is this text edited? One of the most interesting examples is that the, gospel, the writers of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, respectively, when they, were, they didn't know each other, but they each had a copy of the Gospel of Mark on their desk when they were writing. And Matthew, it turns out, not surprisingly, edited Mark in very um, consistent ways that show his Matthean biases. So did Luke. He took Mark's text and edited it in his own particular and peculiar Lucan ways that, that reveal his editorial bias. Those are just a few of the tools you can use to take a text to try to get a peek behind the text. Moving to the middle shelf of the toolbox, we find the, tape, uh, we find the level labeled in. This set of tools invites us to consider, what if we just focus on the text itself? Again, I'll limit myself just to a few of my favorites, like text criticism. Those of you who have read the Bible uh, may know that often you see this. Have you ever noticed like super, super tiny letters that have like a little A and it says other manuscripts say? Text criticism goes back and looks at the manuscripts. They don't all say the same thing, and it compares that origi those original texts. Uh, rhetorical criticism, you know, who is speaking? How do they speak? What does that reveal? Translation criticism, comparing all the gradients of meaning in the original language and the nuances that are gained or lost. I often think of this as a Venn diagram. So if you look up in a good English dictionary, is there one definition for something? No, there's like 10, 20, 30 definitions. So if you look up a word in the original Greek or Hebrew, it's the same thing. The words mean like 20 different things. And so even if you're 
you're picking a good word, with every single word, you're losing nuances of meaning and you're gaining nuances of meaning. Does that make sense? And that's what translation critics focus on. Like it's, it's not that the tr our translations are bad, our translations are amazing actually, but still with every single word, you're gaining meaning and you're losing shadows of meaning. So there's just a few of the tools for playing in the text itself. The top level of our toolbox is labeled in front of. This set of tools focuses on what is happening to the individuals and the groups in front of the text. Reception criticism. That studies not how a text should be interpreted, but it looks at how, just how it has been interpreted. How in general were people reading this in the in the first century? How are they reading it in the Middle Ages? How are they reading it? Just look at how this text has been interpreted differently over time and it can really open stuff up. How has it been received? Feminist criticism. Turns out if you get some women in the room and emphasize women's experiences and perspectives, you notice different things. Liberation criticism. Using the text with an unapologetic agenda of advancing social justice. It can be both fascinating and exciting to figure out for any given text you open up your toolbox. Which tool or tools would best fit this job? Sometimes you might need the crowbar of historical criticism to try to get back there and what was going on. Uh, other times you might need the microscope of textual criticism and still other times you might need the hammer of you know, liberation. If you're curious to learn more about these interpretive approaches, two good starting points are a handbook to Old, Text Old Testament exegesis by William Brown. Exegesis just means to draw meaning out of a text. Eisegesis is to read meaning into a text. Or Searching for Meaning, an introduction to interpreting the New Testament by Paula Gooder. So there's whole books on how to, how to do this. For now, let's begin to pull together some of the implications of having this growing numbers of in, you know, hermeneutical tools, this Swiss army knife of tools. What are you going to use for this occasion? So come with me a little further through the looking glass and you'll begin to see, as you may already have, for better or worse, that a text, it just doesn't have one plain meaning for all times and places. And anyone that tries to convince you otherwise is delusional, I would invite you to consider. Uh, they're just delusional. For instance, have you ever heard someone ask, you know, sincerely, so what does the Bible say about X? Well, first of all, the, Bi the Bible is an anthology. The Bible says a lot of things about a lot of things, but even more importantly, the Bible doesn't say anything. Like if I, if I drop the Bible, it doesn't say, ouch, that's not a Bible. Uh, <laughs> you have to read it, right? And the more you understand about the vast array of options there are for how one might read a text, the deeper the rabbit hole goes. And here's the really important part. Because we do have agency and choice over the tools we use to interpret a text, of which interpretive tools or tools we take out of our toolbox, we should arguably be held responsible for our interpretations. Said more bluntly, the more one knows about interpretation, the less convincing it is when someone tries to blame their hatred, their prejudice, their violence on the text. The text made me do it. Is it really the text's fault? Or is it your unskillful interpretation that is to blame? Have you thoroughly explored behind the text the fullness of the original context and how that may be different from our current context? Have you tinkered enough 
within the text to consider all the nuances of language, perspectives, and detail? Have you invited an increasingly diverse group of people to join you in front of the text to discover angles you may have previously failed to consider? As many oppressed groups have discovered over the years, if you are not at the table, you may be on the menu. The Yale University New Testament scholar Dale Martin has a succinct way of describing this dynamic that we've been exploring. He says that texts don't mean, people mean with texts. And appropriately, he means at least two things with that quote. I once heard uh, Martin give a lecture on this, and he called it um, practicing safe texts. <laughs> people mean with texts in the sense that Texts are not self-interpreting. They don't have just one plain meaning. Instead, we humans, something happens in this sort of hermeneutical relationship. We co-create meaning along with a text. Think, think of the various songs and films and other works of art that have come to mean different things to you at different points in your life. Either they're the same, but you're reading the same text differently. As you've heard me quote before, we, it is not so simple as to say we see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. Now, it's also true, you've heard me quote, you know, um, Philip K. Dick, that, you know, that reality is what doesn't go away when we stop believing in it, right? So it, it's somewhere in between those two things, right? The text is the same, but we really can bring different things to it. Perhaps the most salient example in our country today is actually not with the Bible, but with the United States Constitution. And even a cursory study of the various 5-4 um, Supreme Court decisions of the past or of recent history will expose that there is just a huge amount of leeway in how the same text of the United States Constitution is interpreted depending on who's doing the interpreting. As law scholars have shown, it is not that some justices are smarter or understand constitutional law better or avoid decisions based on their value choices. Rather, their disagreements reflect differing ideologies, differing life experiences, and differing worldviews. And I urge you not to believe the propaganda that some justices are being activists and others are being allegedly neutral interpreters. There is no neutral interpretation. You are making a choice about which tool you're using. And if you take a step back, you will find that all humans, from the most conservative to the most liberal and everywhere, up and down and in between, are making choices about how we interpret. Constitutional originalists will try to persuade you that they have the only or best way of interpreting, just like biblical fundamentalists will. But fundamentalist interpretations of the Constitution do not impress me any more than fundamentalist interpretations of the Bible. In both cases, the end result tends to be narrow, rigid, and antiquated. We don't have to limit ourselves to only one interpretive tool when there are so many hermeneutical toys in our toolbox. Relatedly, when I was growing up, there was a lot of fear about being seen as picking and choosing. Anyone ever heard that? Like, oh, you're just picking and choosing. In the theologically conservative congregation of my childhood, you didn't want to be someone who was perceived as favoring one part of the Bible over another, even though there's some terrible parts of the Bible. Why can't we just say that? Like, that's not a great part of the Bible. Let's pay attention to this other part that's like really good. Um, but we couldn't do that since it was all allegedly equally important as the infallible word of God. It's just that it's not. It's written by humans. The, as William James said, the trail of the human serpent is all over. 
And if we come to accept that we do have freedom and responsibility that comes with picking and choosing, there's one more vitally important part, and that's if you accept the truth that everyone picks and chooses, why not choose love? Why are you choosing hate and violence and division? Why not choose love and mercy, forgiveness and compassion and joy? I, you, we, everyone, we are responsible for the truth and the goodness and the morality and the social effect of how we interpret the Bible or any other um, sacred scripture or text then and now. So why not choose love? Why not select tools to the greatest extent possible that will lead to a kinder, more compassionate interpretation? Why not choose the interpretive tool for the job that will increase peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for an elite few? but peace, liberty, and justice for all. I know it's complicated. I know all that's easier said than done. But this is what the, the UUA is talking about and the, the launch that's happening at 2 p.m. today. It's on our homepage, or you can sign up just to get the recording. When they are launching this Side with Love Center, that's what they're inviting us to do, is to ask that question, even if it's, not, even if it's difficult and not simple. How do we side with love? Or as that Rumi poem goes, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. And that, that field is often the field of loving awareness. As for me and my house, we are answering the call of love. And sometimes it's easier to look at a text and decide that it's you know, unduly antiquated or obsolete and just, just throw it out and write something new that's more relevant today. Other times, though, I invite you to consider it is worth going deep. It is worth staying, uh, staying at the table and wrestling with a text until you get a blessing. You can get there. As you've heard me say before, we have to give up all hope of a better past. But in each new present moment, we have a new chance reading texts how we treat ourselves, how we treat one another, how we treat this planet. We can't get a better past for any of those things, but in each new present moment, we have a new opportunity to side with love, to answer the call of love. Holding that opportunity in our hearts, I invite you to hear a hymn of response that is, invited, uh, that is inspired by the Jewish High Holy Days. It's called, We Begin Again in Love. And now I've got to pick up the book that I threw so I can help you with this. For remaining silent when a single voice would have made a difference. For each time that our fears have made us rigid and inaccessible. We forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again. For each time that we have struck out in anger without just cause. We forgive ourselves and each other. For each time that our greed has blinded us to the needs of others. We forgive ourselves and 
for the times that selfishness has set us apart and alone. We forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For each time we have fallen short of the admonitions of the Spirit. We forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again in love. For each time we have lost sight of our underlying unity. We forgive ourselves and each other. We begin again For those and for so many acts, both evident and subtle, which have fueled the illusion of separateness. So that is our opportunity in each moment to consider how might we begin again in love. I'll remind you of just one final thing. Uh, there's a Buddhist teacher who sometimes says, if you can't forgive yourself or each other in the moment, try for this. I forgive you or I forgive me as much as I can in this moment. <laughs> that, that's a starting point for beginning again in love. And also to know, and I learned this from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, sometimes the final step in the process of forgiving, especially another person who has wronged you, sometimes the final step is restoring the relationship. Other times, it is releasing the relationship and releasing that hold that it's had on you. May we forgive ourselves and each other. May we begin again in love.